Nothing you hear in this program constitutes investment advice. It is an expression of opinion only. This is Frisbees, Bulls and Bears. Talking money and markets. What's happening and why. We talk to the experts, the traders, the investors and the companies they're investing in. You're listening to Frisbees, Bulls and Bears with Dominic Frisbee. Hello and welcome to Frisbee's Bulls and Bears with me, Dominic Frisbee. Now today I'm at the Gold and Silver Summit here in London and sitting next to me is the founder of Bullion Vault, Paul Tustain. Hello Paul, it's a pleasure to finally get you on the show. That's very nice to be here. Thanks Dominic. Uh, not at all. Now, um, I was in the car this morning and I caught a couple of minutes of the Andrew Marr show on Radio 4 where I heard somebody declaring that gold is in a bubble. Tell us why it is or it isn't. Well, firstly, I don't think it's unusual for the BBC uh, to be slow to catch on to things. They've been historically quite slow to catch on to the fact that equity markets were in a, a prolonged dip. As regards gold being in a bubble, I, I look at the chart now and I see pretty much 10 years of unbroken growth. And I have to ask myself the same question. Uh, when you, If you don't have a frame of reference which says why it's got to where it is, you can't really explain why it's so high and you start fearing downside. So that seems to me a perfectly understandable position to take for somebody who, who hasn't done a, had a careful look at it all. I can make a fairly persuasive case in a very narrow sense of gold being in a bubble. And uh, what I would say is I always look at the um, long-term base level of gold, which is very famously that an ounce of gold would buy uh, maybe 300 loaves of bread or a fine suit of clothes. Now, that's been true for about 2,000 years as a base level. If you look at that, then you would probably say that gold is overvalued at the moment by about 60%, which is sort of almost heretical for me to say that as somebody who's very fond of gold. You must go to cheap shops to buy your suits. <laughs> of course. <laughs> um, um, but the important thing with gold is to understand that it, is, it, it has both, both this base value and an, insu an insurance aspect uh, where what you're doing is you're buying something which covers a vast variety of um, currency downsides into the future. Um, and so, I mean, I, I see a lot of people looking at charts. I'm not really a big chart fan. Uh, I'm looking for a fundamental reason for gold being very profoundly undervalued at thirteen dollars or $1,400 an ounce. And the model that I've been working with recently is valuing gold on an actuarial basis. So what I do is I, uh, I put into a spreadsheet various possible inflationary outcomes. And I take a, a view here of something like 10 to 15 years. Okay. Um, I, I, I put them in and I give them, uh, assign to each possible inflationary outcome a, uh, a probability mm -hmm. of that inflationary outcome working. Uh, and then, uh, given that inflationary outcome, I try and calculate what I think uh, an ounce of gold would be worth um, under those circumstances. So with my first cut at this model, uh, I put all the numbers in, and I came up with a staggering figure uh, of over $8,000 an ounce. 
Now, that reflects, you shouldn't be too surprised that it's so high. That's because, as somebody who is still buying gold in quite significant quantities, I clearly have a perception of risk in the market which is much, much higher mm-hmm. than uh, ordinary people and uh, um, ordinary investors everywhere else. But when I look at my numbers, I really believe them. Um, I'm talking about 15-year outcomes where maybe the ongoing inflation rate or, or the net loss of value of money might be, say, 60, 60% in 10 or 15 years. Now, if you How is that... Is that, is that the difference between real interest rates and RPI Yes, it is. Over. I, I mean, okay. I, I do this, obviously, with the, you know, you do discounted cash flow analysis to work out what your net present value mm. would be, um, and I'm using a rate of between 2 and 3%, which I think is more than generous, given our available... Okay. Uh, what, what other inflation prices did you put into your spreadsheet? I, mean, I, you I put the entire... Like prices and things like that? No, no, I'm interested. Actually, I'm, I'm most interested in what's happening to what I think of as the needs side of, uh, of consumption. And you'll be aware, for example, that if you were a reasonably well-off um, uh, British person, for example, right now, you've just probably lost uh, maybe £1,000 of your disposable income to child benefit. And you know pretty well that you're going to lose another £6,000 for each university year that you want your children to, to go to university. Now, that squeezes out an, an enormous amount of potential demand from your personal spending mm-hmm. um, and that's you know, so that's uh, what that has the effect of in all developed economies you see that there are uh, there is a weighting towards the services sector a weighting away from the commodities so we're moving es- essentially from being a wants and desires economy to a, a needs and worries economy mm-hmm. and in a needs and worries economy you look at the data across all the different uh, countries of the world you see that by reverting to the mean of where everybody else is we are going to consume a lot less services, we're going to consume a lot less manufactured goods, and a greater proportion of our income is going to be taken up with commodities. Now, this is, this is ter- in a high-debt scenario, which is the one we're in, you're in what um, a very, very influential book that's come out recently by Reinhardt and Rogoff uh, called um, Eight Centuries of Financial Folly, This Time is Different. Now, the, the important thing they get out of this is that when, you're, when your public debt exceeds something like 90% of GDP... Um, then you get into a situation where you can't stimulate the economy because if you do that, uh, uh, you're going further into debt, which is what the problem is. And if you don't stimulate or if you cut back, then your tax take um, disappears. Mm-hmm. So, you, uh, so the data is that above 90%, which is frankly where the Western world is now, and it's already projecting to go well above that over the next five or six years, uh, above 90%, you look like a pretty serious case. So if you take all of those uh, issues and you start suggesting very cautiously that the uh, risks of hyperinflation in the next 15 years... I, I, should, I shouldn't really say hyperinflation. I think the risk of very rapid inflation, the sort of, um, the sort of uh, rates of currency depreciation that might knock out 80 or even 90% of your currency value, which of course has happened in most of the last 15-year periods, if you take those and give them even meaningful probabilities, the net present value of, of gold now is simply colossal. And, and this is a... Uh, anyway, I mean, this is how, how somebody like me, somebody who is very cautious, very worried about um, the long-term um, power of our currencies to, to hold value, this is how I come up with, obviously, high figures for the value of gold right now. This was just listening to Andrew, the Andrew Marr show, and I haven't listened to the whole thing yet. This was just the two or three minutes I caught um, in, in the car. The one thing they didn't mention, 
and it's the one thing you don't see mentioned, even with all this uh, extra press that gold is getting in the mainstream media. The one thing you don't hear talked about with any great insight is currency debasement. Well, uh, that is the story, and it's odd that they don't talk about it, and it's odd that they don't have... They talk about inflation, and they talk about... They they mentioned Bernanke's quantitative easing last week, but but the full-on currency debasement and the colossal loss of purchasing power, you just don't hear it mentioned. You don't, uh, yet it is a fact of our lives. Um, It's been... You know, there's a story I sometimes tell of of my great-aunt, who... uh, she retired, as was then the, the, the um, women's retirement age at 60. She lived to about 94. And she retired, a wealthy woman, with two private pensions, a nice uh, property in Leicester, um, and, um, and an annuity that was bought by, by another member of the family for her. Anyway, the net result of this is after she'd been retired for 36 years and then finally died, when I looked at her estate and wound it up um, as an executor, all of her income was insufficient to pay the council tax on the house that she owned. And that's the nature of that's saving amazing. saving for the future in a world that has not prepared itself for currency debasement. It, it, the, th- the thing that gets me is, you know, let's say you earn 100 or 150 grand a year, which is a pretty good salary for most people. Um, it's by the time you've paid taxes and then VAT on whatever you buy and you've had your costs, whether it's your mortgage or your children's school fees or whatever it is, it's very hard. You know, and most people only hit top salary for maybe 15 or 20 years of their working lives. It's very hard to actually save anything. So you, you work all your life, unless you, you invest and you play the game and you're either a company owner or a, you actually... But if you just work for a salary, it's very hard to at the end of a working life to come out of it with anything. Well, it's an iniquitous problem, and uh, it's not dissimilar to old-fashioned slavery. The nature of slavery was that uh, you, would, you would earn um, enough or you would be granted enough uh, by your overlord to stay alive. You weren't able to accumulate anything. You weren't able to accumulate the wealth, which is, in fact, the fuel of freedom. You weren't able to do that. Um, now, what's happened, of course, is we've had a massive wealth transfer over two or three generations to the grey generation, uh, and the uh, less grey generation uh, feel they have a right to be paid out by, if you like, the, 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 the babies of our society. When we, so when, when we get old, we expect our children to pay for us. That's a massive credit transfer, and what it's had the effect of doing is it's made us think that the state is actually going to look after us. But uh, in a uh, in a wor- it has, as you said, the, the, the nasty side effect of meaning that a great many people are wage slaves all their lives. They simply never accumulate anything, which gives them independence from the system and the state, uh, and they don't enjoy the freedoms which, uh, on the face of it, a free society ought to give them. Um, and this is very sad. I personally think uh, we will, as a generation, we will see our pensions paid nominally in full. Uh, just like the Russians did uh, many years ago in, 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 in the 1990s after their currency hyperinflations. It will be paid nominally in full and we'll be able to buy a couple of sandwiches a month with, the, with, with that. Do you like what the coalition government are trying to do? Well, they're definitely moving in the right direction, but we don't know if they're going to be able to succeed. Um, Is the they've tide taken, too strong? They've take, well, they've taken a huge amount of pressure off sterling by making the right noises, but nothing has actually happened yet. They haven't really made any cuts bite and and although it is they've taken the pressure off us because 
What's happening is that now the investment money is looking, for example, at the US, where, of course, as a result of the election of Barack Obama, they've swerved more to uh, an environment of uh, welfare protection and, of course, the, uh, the health policies of Obama, which I find very hard to object to. But the reality is they're moving down the path that perhaps we went down 15, 20, or even in our case, 50 years ago. So it's early November. Gold's at just below $1,400 an ounce. It's at roughly £900 an ounce. Um, do, you make, do you ever make short-term projections or intermediate-term projections with a gold price, or are you just a, a no, big I, accumulator? I absolutely don't make short-term projections. What I will tell anybody who asks for a short-term project- projection is that uh, tomorrow morning or next week, a hedge fund manager will wake up somewhere in Wall Street and will make a big bet up or down on gold or silver. And that will decide the way the market moves. It's still a small market by comparison with almost every other financial market. And it will move it. And, and no amount of uh, thinking on my behalf uh, will resolve which way he's going to go. On the, what I like to do is to look at risk-reward in the long term based largely on fundamentals. I think the risks of long-term high level of inflation, particularly in the things that we buy... I think we're going to have to shape our lives differently and, for example, and buy more commodities. I think those commodities are going to be bought more and more by um, using our money, oddly enough, um, accumulating in the reserves of the Far East. That will put our money back into circulation. It will be the first time in three generations that we've been competing to buy, for example, wheat or grain. Uh, we will have to pay more from a smaller and smaller base. I think our service sectors are going to struggle to keep uh, selling services in the UK. Um, So taking all that together, uh, I have a a medium-term position for gold. And I've I've actually got a very nasty long-term position for gold. The long-term position for gold is that it will revert to its base value. And its base value will be that suit of clothes or those 300 Mm -hmm. loaves of bread. Uh, But in the meantime, as the currency fails, we'll see gold, I think, go to very much higher levels. There is, I, won't make that, I won't make a prediction about price. I believe it is undervalued at thirteen uh, or $1,400. Um, my first gut reaction, as I said earlier on, was when I put in what I thought were the actuarial risks. I came to a, a figure over $8,000. Um, when I then went back, bearing in mind that I know I'm you know, unusual in the market in my fear of inflation, uh, so I went back to try and make the most benign predictions I possibly could about inflation and about what gold prices would do given certain inflation scenarios. And even then, my price came trivially to uh, just under $2,000 an ounce. So that was being as cautious as I felt I possibly could be. Um, So I think, uh, you know, specific predictions, difficult to do. Specific targets, certainly not, because the world changes. When we get there, we're looking at a different uh, policy background. Uh, So I won't be too specific, but I'll say it's a, a dangerous thing now to uh, look into the future and to hold on to things like bonds, to rely on a pension, and not to do the hard graft of saving one or two hundred pounds a month and buying something which will last. Do you think we will ever see a time where um, another country will refuse to accept sterling for its goods and services in a way that we might not accept the Zimbabwe dollar or the Argentinian peso once upon a time? I think it's extremely likely. It's a very worrying thought. It's a very sobering thought. Um, I remember a scene from Star Star Wars, which I watched with my son when they're in the distant realms of the galaxy and uh, the local refuses to accept the imperial note. Your money is no good here. 
Um, last question for you, Paul. Um, you're on stage in just a few minutes, so you're, thank you very much, by the way, for, for, for talking to me just before you're on stage, because I know you, you, you like to focus on your talk. Do you see a time coming where most people have 5% of their net worth or 10% of their net worth in gold and silver? No, sadly, I don't. I think that the result of a uh, bull market, as it gradually adjusts to the changing probabilities of our future, I think it makes it too painful. I don't think people appreciate. You know, people stand back and they say, once there's inflation, I'll be able to move. Once there's this, I'll be able to move. But then when the time comes, they look at it and they see, oh, gold's gone from $300 an ounce eight years ago to something like $1,400 an ounce now. It makes it unbelievably painful for them to buy gold. They're much, they've already lost half their money one way, mm -hmm. and they're frightened of losing another half by buying gold at exactly the wrong time. I think what will happen is sophisticated financial people will accumulate most of the gold. I think they'll carry on paying higher prices. I think people who've bought in, perhaps now, a little at a time, um, maybe squeak themselves up to 10%, and it'll be a painful process to do that because there'll be plenty of volatility on the way. But I think what will happen is there will be a small minority of people who have a larger than fair share of mm -hmm. gold. And the interesting thing in a historical perspective, if you look at uh, the best sort of example of um, hyperinflation, uh, broadly based hyperinflation, if you go back to Hungary, Austria, Germany, uh, what you see is the same pattern of all the wealth being controlled by a relatively small amount of, uh, small number of people. And of course they become hated for it. Um, and they, they arouse enormous jealousy. But that was the pattern before. It was also the pattern in Zimbabwe. It's, it, it's typical. Financial markets, as things break down, become very volatile, very dangerous places, and they frighten ordinary people into not acting, even when they got stolen, they should. I wonder if those who are clever enough to buy gold will become the scapegoats. I think there is a danger of that. Um, uh, I think, um, but I think that's a bridge I'll, I'll, I'll cross when we come to it yeah. and in the meantime you know it wouldn't be the first time that uh, that governments move to make fairly punitive um, uh, tax uh, treatments of assets which the rest of the population at large think are due for some sort of windfall tax that is a danger but you're better off uh, having some of that and 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 paying up the windfall tax in future than, than having nothing, than having a whole pile of paper assets that nobody will give you anything for. I mean, so, you, know, you asked the question earlier on about, uh, you know, w would currency be accepted? The reality is, when things get very bad, it's, foreign, it's reliable foreign currencies that get passed. Um, not gold, typically. It's reliable. Mm -hmm. Gold is still the, the bankable financial asset, but uh, the, 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 the currency that gets moved around from hand to hand in a place like, for example, Zimbabwe, uh, was, of course, the U.S. dollar, um, which I think it's fair to say in the middle of the last decade was the sensible thing to own. Um, but uh, So that's the pattern. You would expect to see reliable foreign currencies still being treated as the medium of purchase and medium of exchange. I think it's unlikely you'd see gold. Personally, I don't own any gold in this country. Um, my preferred method and the one we use at Bullion Vault is to allow people to choose one of three uh, vaulting jurisdiction so that they can um, what is that? Zurich, Jersey and London, Zurich? It, it's London, Zurich, New York okay. um, and the reason, one of the issues obviously you've got to be very near a, a, a major bullion market mm -hmm. uh, because you want to be able to buy and sell gold as the mm -hmm. demand comes and, and, and disappears you want to be able to do it on very efficient 
large-scale commodity markets, which we have there. And I think, although there is a risk particularly to British people and uh, to own gold in Britain, and there is a risk to American people to own gold in the US, I think mostly they agree that their negotiating hand is far stronger if they own gold directly, mm-hmm. their own personal property, in a place like uh, Zurich, and that's how we try and structure it. Excellent stuff. Well, I'll let you give out the website. Well, it's, uh, it's bullionvault.com, um, um, and you'll probably see quite a lot of adverts around in the press at the moment. But, uh, yeah, bullionvault.com. And you can buy and sell gold online, and you have direct ownership of that gold. That's right. And um, we, we're now, we, we won the Queen's Award for Enterprise uh, last year. It's a very new way in, in, the, in the history of the gold market, which has been going on, obviously, for hundreds of years. But... Uh, what we did was we opened a window for the private individual to buy professional market gold because the uh, the cost of that is much lower than coins and bars um, and also the resale value is much higher and it's much easier to sell gold which has been held in what the professional market calls the chain of integrity which is which is the way we structure it excellent stuff last question is the silver market manipulated well uh, apparently yes and uh, but then I've 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 been asked this question very many times. It's not manipulated in the way people uh, have been talking about it in terms of conspiracy. All these futures markets are subject to um, relatively low-level manipulation at expiry. There is a huge advantage to the financial institution that has the ability to run a position to settlement. And the big players can do this. The small players can't run silver to settlement. The result is they're forced to close out at expiry date. And the professionals manipulated in the sense that they leave, they leave a, a, a low bid in the market, knowing that the people who've got to sell will have to sell to them um, at, at that low bid. And at the same time as they're doing it, the offer in the next period is probably half, an ounce, uh, sorry, half a dollar an ounce above mm-hmm. the fair value of the forward curve. So the manipulation they're going to find, I think, is that some of the bigger players will leave these low bids, won't come in and buy, because, and why should they? They've paid expensively for the ability to settle physical bullion into the futures market in, in settlement of their, their closing positions. Uh, but it doesn't feel like that when mm. you're a, a retail investor who's sitting on the other side um, trying to get out from the June to the December or whatever it may be. Very interesting stuff. Paul Tustain, uh, thank you so much for your time and uh, do come on the show again soon. Paul Tustain, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Dominic. You're listening to Frisbee's Bulls and Bears with Dominic Frisbee at frisbeesbullsandbears.com. Well, hello and welcome back to Frisbee's Bulls and Bears with me, Dominic Frisbee. As I said, I'm at the Gold and Silver Summit and uh, it's now my pleasure to welcome onto the show David Morgan. Now, David was my first ever guest uh, on this show when it was called Commodity Watch Radio back in would have been 2006, late 2006. And uh, David is, uh, well, he's known as the Silver Pope among uh, silver aficionados. His website is silver-investor.com. His newsletter is the Morgan Report. Now, David, um, my first question for you is, I thought silver was going to hit a wall at $25, and it, it kind of bounced off 25 and then went through it on the second attempt. What did you make of that action? 
Uh, pretty much what I expected. Um, I have made a statement in the past that at 25, we could see an acceleration in the market. And I started to back off on that slightly because it's the idea, not the number that I want to convey. But at some point, for all practical purposes, everyone that owns silver owns it at a profit. Now, we all know silver hit $50 on an intraday high. We don't all know, but, but it did. And many people you know, make a big deal out of that. But in reality, it didn't trade much above the $20 level for very long. So at 25, that's chart-wise and fundamentally an area where everyone that owns it holds on to it because people get greedy and no one knows how high is high. So what that means is anyone that's new in the market that buys it will take the price higher and higher and higher. So it doesn't take much new buying to accelerate the price. So that's why I was watching 25 and it's pretty much doing what I expected it to do. That's very interesting actually that you say that because uh, I thought we'd hit a wall at 25, but I must confess I sold a bit at 22 at the old high, thinking we'd hit a wall there, and, you know, it was the wrong trade. But because I got it wrong at 22, I didn't sell any more at 25. Um, now, yeah, you, where do you see silver going in, in the, the, the short term? Here's another thought for you. I mean, we, we both know the, the, the fundamentals behind silver, and it's possibly the most exciting fundamentals behind any metal there is. It's industrial use, it's monetary use. Um, but it does have a tendency to frustrate and disappoint. Um, now, I've noticed previous corrections in silver have started when it's about one and a half, one point six 1.6 times its one-year moving average. I'm thinking May 2006, March 2008. That would be $27, $28, around about there. I mean, do you think we're going to get some kind of correction, or do you think onwards and upwards from here? Oh, we'll definitely get a correction. It's just picking when and, you know, the point. I won't argue with what you just said, but I've been thinking about that lately because I knew the question would come up. I play the gold-silver ratio at times, and the last lowest gold-silver ratio that we've had in recent times, meaning this bull market, yeah. it's been going on for a decade, was about 52 to 1. That's where we're at right now. So what I think is that we'll get to a ratio of around 40 to 1, which will hit the channel analysis. Yeah. And if it at that point, I think we might get a correction. I could be wrong, but... There's uh, all the indications right now is there's a bit of a short squeeze going on. I'm not seeing an official short squeeze. The only way we'll get an official short squeeze is the open interest in the futures markets on the CME, the Commodities Mercantile Exchange in Chicago, starts to decrease. And if it's, the open interest is decreasing while the price is going up, that's an indicator that we're getting a short squeeze, at least at some level. On the other hand, obviously the converse. If we start to see open interest go down and the price is going down, that, that means no short squeeze and that uh, you know we've, we've done our job for a while. Silver's going to have to consolidate back and fill and be on the downside. Right now, I favor the upside. I think that um, the banks are reluctant to sell a great deal of paper silver at this point. I, I must say, I, I, I'm always... Uh, I think just, just because of silver, I'm always a, a little bit nervous about it. But what has me favoring the upside at the moment is um, th this silver really started to take off in late July, early August. And that coincided with two things. First, the, um, 
the noises about the the next bout of quantitative easing that quantitative easing has come in at a higher level uh, than expected i think 500 billion was expected and it came in at 600 billion the other thing it coincided with was the um abolition of the prop desks of jp morgan's prop desks and that really seems to propel silver higher I agree. I wrote about it. In fact, I think I made a video about it. I know I wrote about it. And um, they have about a year, so roughly September of 2011. But they're starting. They will begin to unwind them. They're certainly using them now. Uh, But uh, it's an interesting law. I mean, either you can trade for yourself or you can trade for your clients, but you can't do both. So that will add some pressure, I think. It's got to be a good law, though, hasn't it? I believe so, yeah. I think... You know, my mission statement is to teach and empower people to understand the benefits of an honest financial system. Mm-hmm. Gold and silver aren't even in my mission statement. Because if we're all on a level playing field and we're all, you know, truthfully transacting with each other, it's a lot stronger, much freer, much fairer yeah. world for everyone, rich and poor. Unfortunately, the system's been so corrupted for so long that no one trusts anyone. Yeah. And that's why you get into these currency destructions that we're now witnessing. But, I mean, on the issue of whether you trade... If you if you are a trader and your business model is a commission model, that's one thing. But to be a commission model and to trade against those people who are paying you a commission, it's, it's, it seems inherently wrong. It is wrong. Yeah, I totally agree. Now, um, David, uh, we, we, we just want, we're going in, in in a couple of minutes to hear Paul Tustain of, of Bullion Vault talk. Um, if you had any advice for anyone who doesn't hold any silver now, would you say run out and buy? Yeah, well, I think the physical market has a different modality than any other silver investment, be it an ETF or a futures option or an options contract or a mining company or any of those. A physical realm is the only realm that's outside what I call the matrix. When you own physical silver and gold coins or bars, it's the only asset class that's money that is held with no counterparty risk whatsoever. Everything else has counterparty risk to it because of that. And so people understand that. That's why I believe you see a lot more money coming to these metals over time. So if you have none, get the real thing, but you don't have to buy anything else at this point. And uh, what are your ultimate sell signals? What, what things are you looking for which will get you out of silver? Stability in the financial system. If I saw some stability in the financial system, then I would look at an undervalued asset class. That would, uh, that would probably be my, my take. But I wouldn't be anxious to get out of the physical metals. I might get out of the mining shares or leverage positions or ETFs or that type of thing well before a change in the financial system. But until the financial system is restructured where it's believable and trustworthy, I'll be holding my physical metal. Very good. Um, I have a thought for you. We were asked for our trades of the decade. I write for Money Week magazine, and we were asked for our trades of the decade. And I suggested that um, as people become more and more frustrated uh, holding cash, in uh, holding cash which is losing its purchasing power, um, we are going to see the rise of alternative non-government currencies that are accepted by businesses, particularly businesses that trade across borders, which are much harder for, you know, to police, basically. Do you think that's a real possibility? Absolutely. That's what history teaches us. I mean, actually, people determine what money is, not government. That sounds very counterintuitive, but over time, that's what happens. Look at gold money. Basically, you can use a gold money transaction, and that's international, and that's real money in grams of gold or grams of silver, and it's taking place. And there's other... uh, e-gold, there's a several e 
metals-backed currencies. There's some coinage currencies and that type of thing. So it happens at a very low, small level, but it happens. And that's people determining what money is, not a government. Well, this is exactly why I love the Internet. There are so many businesses that have thrived on um, information scarcity, particularly in the financial services um, arena. And there is no more, there is no greater ignorance or information scarcity than with the, syst- the modern system of money and credit. And suddenly the internet has just changed all that and there are so many people that are getting informed and it's you know bloggers and ordinary people like you and me that are that are you know getting the message out there and the more people that get the message so so the, the internet is a huge source for freedom absolutely i've written about that in fact i said that the advent of the internet was probably comparable to the gutenberg printing press uh, there you go that is that is exactly which and which the gutenberg printing press of course made the bible available in in the common vernacular rather than in latin which eroded the uh, monopoly that the priesthood had i can hear the introductory music going on so david your website is silver-investor.com it's an excellent report it is the morgan report silver-investor.com david morgan once again thank you very much my pleasure dominic thank you frisbee's bulls and bears is presented and produced by dominic frisbee To discuss the markets and have your say, why not visit our forum at globaledgeinvestors.com. That's globaledgeinvestors.com. To join our mailing list so you can be updated as soon as a new show is posted, please email info at dominicfrisbee.net or simply subscribe through iTunes. 